It's Monday, July 9th, and this is The Daily Dive. Tonight is the big night. President Trump will announce his second nominee for the next Supreme Court justice. The announcement will be made in prime time and is expected to set off a big fight from Democrats. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, will join us for that and the fallout from Mike Pompeo's trip to North Korea, where he was accused of gangster-like tactics in pursuing denuclearization. We have another problem in the U.S. Too much cheese. We have the largest stockpile of cheese in the 100 years since regulators have been keeping tabs. Heather Haddon, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the latest. As milk consumption drops, dairies turn more of it into cheese, and now tariffs from Mexico and China might make the problem worse. Finally, the wild boars are making a comeback. The rescue effort to escort the Thai soccer team from a flooded underground cave has begun with promising results. The first group of boys is out as the race is on amid dropping oxygen levels and more rain. My producer Miranda joins us to detail how the boys are making it out of the cave safely. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Let me make clear, North Korea reaffirmed its commitment to complete denuclearization. I am determined to achieve the commitment that President Trump made, and I am counting on Chairman Kim to be determined to follow through on the commitment that he made. And so if those requests were gangster like they are, the, the world is a gangster because there was a unanimous decision at the UN Security Council about what needs to be achieved. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. So President Trump had all but declared a victory after he met with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, saying they're no longer a nuclear threat. They're going to on the road to denuclearization. But the man who is doing a lot of the footwork, really, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, is uh, getting another story, basically. He had just made another trip to North Korea. He uh, had a press conference, said he called those meetings very productive. But the North Korean foreign ministry, after he left, released a statement saying that uh, accusing him of gangster-like demands for denuclearization, said it was a deeply regrettable meeting. They still trust President Trump. What is going on out there? There are signs that this deal is coming apart if there ever was a deal to begin with. We know when President Trump sat down with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, there was a lot of criticism within his own party and outside across the United States, really, that he had not sufficiently secured an agreement and that North Korea had no reason to keep to the the agreement that they had made. We're seeing some evidence of that now, these public pushback of the notion that they would completely denuclearize, and this suggestion from Pompeo that they were still in talks. This is a sign that, that it's not as easy as sitting down at a resort in Singapore and shaking hands. There's a lot more steps and uh, the ability to verify the change in their in their weapon system, the ability to verify that they aren't developing weapons in a secret location. All of that is much more complicated and proving to be more difficult uh, than probably President Trump had hoped. From the reports that I was reading, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo showed up to North Korea. He didn't even know where he was going to be going, what hotel he was staying. And he was there with staff members and a few members of the press. They said that a lot of the meetings were these big, lavish lunches and things like that, things that really made Pompeo uncomfortable. You know, he wanted to get there to start these uh, negotiations, to start these talks. And they were really not set up for that, uh, basically. And it all centers around these sanctions. You know, they want a gradual concessions from the United States. We want to just get this whole denuclearization process started, basically, and then we'll give you concessions. 
these are often a very delicate balance, a, a dance, if you would, where give a little, get a little, change this, get a little of that. Historically speaking, it's been very difficult uh, to sort of unravel that process. Look at Iran, where there was a lot of criticism of how President Obama eased some of those sanctions, uh, returned some of the money that the United States had been holding, some of the Iranian assets that had been frozen in the U.S. banking system. All of that required a, a little bit of, of trust, a little bit of, we'll give you some, give, give us a little more. And the North Koreans would like to see the really suffocating sanctions that they remain under. They have almost no ability to bank. They have almost no ability to use modern financial systems. And they would like to see that all evaporate and not have to let inspectors into their to their weapons uh, facilities. The president is making a huge announcement tonight in primetime. Very, uh, very President Trumpish. He's going to announce his new pick for the Supreme Court. Um, last week, there was a, a top three front runner list. They're also throwing in uh, Judge Thomas Hardiman. He's like, a, a, you know, a new front runner in there. Uh, what is what? What are we expecting from his announcements? We're going to hear the president make uh, a real uh, bold and aggressive pitch for the ultimate selection that he made for the Supreme Court vacancy that will be uh, is. Justice Kennedy has announced his retirement. The announcement and the rollout and the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch last year was lauded as one of the most well-run pieces of the Trump first year in office. And they're going to try to replicate that, keeping the name very close to the chest and hoping to quickly move it through the courts with a lot of Republican and conservative support. We are seeing signs as they sort of banter about which which of those judges would be best uh, to fill that role that in the Senate, you're talking about very slim margins. You can only lose basically two Republicans uh, before you start to get into trouble, maybe even one to get this, this Supreme Court justice through. Yeah. Senator Mitch McConnell is telling President Trump that Judge Hardiman and Judge Kethledge would be the safest picks in terms of Senate confirmation hearings. They don't have as much baggage as the others. But real quick, let's speak about the long shot plan that the Democrats have. Like you said, they have to flip a couple moderate Republicans in order for anything to be obstructed on this one. Uh, and that's a pretty much a, a tough road ahead. It's going to be near impossible for Democrats to stop this nomination. Uh, people point back to Merrick Garland, who was nominated in 2016 and blocked by Senate Republicans. Well, Senate Republicans controlled the Senate at the time. Senate Democrats do not control the Senate, which means they would have to convince two people to flip. We know that right now, Senator John McCain is still home undergoing cancer treatment, unlikely to be available on the floor to vote. That means if you can pick off a couple more Republican senators, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Senator Susan Collins of Maine as two moderate sort of pro-choice Republican women. That's part of the reason that folks think that Coney Barrett might have a hard time since her positions on abortion are so well known. And we know that Judge Kavanaugh there's a lot of concern that he has just written so much in his process as currently as a judge that that would possibly cause some problems for him in the Senate as well. Well, it'll be very exciting to see who the president picks and then the ensuing battle after that. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now. 
Mexico and China have become two really important trading partners for U.S. dairies. Mexico, particularly on cheese, and then China cheese, but also whey, which is a byproduct of cheese. Joining us now is Heather Haddon, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So it's not something you really hear too often. That's why I think this story caught my eye. But the United States has its largest stockpile of cheese in the 100 years since they began keeping tabs on this. We have more cheese than ever. We're producing more milk. And with more milk, what do you do with it? You turn it into cheese. What is going on with our cheese stockpiles right now? We are producing quite a lot of milk and quite a lot of cheese, like you said. So on the milk side, consumption has been dropping for quite a long time. Americans just aren't drinking as much milk as they used to. We are the second largest milk producing country in the U.S. It's a very important part of our agricultural segment and our economy for dairy states in general. So production is still high. And so what to do with that, turn it into cheese, which has been showing growth in consumption. The thing is, the amount of production we have, we do need to offload some of that cheese. So like you said, some of it is in cold storage right now, quite a bit in cold storage. But exports have also become really important to us to try to generate new markets and to move some of that product outside the U.S. The timely element of this is that Mexico and China have become two really important trading partners for U.S. dairies. Mexico, particularly on cheese, and then China cheese, but also whey, which is a byproduct of cheese that is used to feed livestock. So these countries really are important destinations for dairy products for U.S. producers, but now are both putting tariffs on those products, which is really making producers nervous. Yeah, I think uh, between Mexico and China, the amount of money uh, that's on the block for tariffs is almost about a billion dollars that would affect the the entire uh, industry. You know, these are significant streams of money for all kinds of agricultural and manufacturing segments, but also certainly for dairy. Currently, the number one destination for U.S. cheese that is exported is Mexico. Something like 12% of all Mexico's cheese comes from the U.S. I mean, that's a huge amount, a lot of cheese and a lot of trade. So uh, and then I guess one of the biggest concerns is, you know, Mexico is looking to maybe purchase some cheese from the European Union. And one of the biggest concerns is if they find another supplier, then they they won't come back to America after these things with the tariffs kind of cool down. Um, So that's another major concern that cheesemakers here in the United States have. Yeah, absolutely. So, so far, when I was talking to folks in Mexico, it seems like they haven't all jumped ship immediately. These tariffs in Mexico went into effect in June. Then they, they raised last week. Uh, so in early July. So it hasn't completely remade the order for trade yet. The concern is if they continue that eventually Mexican buyers are going to look for other sources. So the really increase its production and increase its um, efforts to try to strike new trade deals with Mexico. Uh, there's other cheese producing nations such as New Zealand and Australia, which have you know quite a lot of product that they could try to get into Mexico. So the concern is that if Mexican buyers are getting antsy about the U.S., they don't trust that things will be stable going forward, even if this tariff situation does get resolved relatively soon, that they could try to find new suppliers and then never go back. They say that this stockpile of cheese that we have is about 1.39 billion pounds. Um, I imagine a huge vault full of all sorts of different cheeses 
but what, what exactly are we stockpiling? What, do we know what kind of cheese we're stockpiling mostly? Uh, it's mostly certainly formed of cheddar. Um, that's that's the the form of cheese that is used in a lot of markets to determine uh, prices. It's, it's cheddar, but it's also mozzarella, which is another commodity that is very important really in to Mexico. So that's used on all kinds of pizzas. Um, uh, this kind of mild white form of cheese is also used, um, you know, a lot of different kinds of forms of Mexican cuisine. So those are sort of the main um, products that are stockpiled, but there's also other forms of cheeses as well. Yeah, I guess they're hoping the big uh, summer pizza push will help reduce some of those stockpiles of the, you know, like you said, cheddar and mozzarella and all. Um, and, and in the meantime, cheesemakers, uh, dairy uh, farmers are being urged to lower their prices just so they can keep the business going. And obviously this is a huge concern for them as well. Yes. Yeah, so that's one thing they're doing uh, internally to try to handle this situation is to keep their current clients by saying, Hey, we'll take a cut of some of this, this increased price uh, by lowering the price of what we're selling to you. Though obviously that can't be done uh, indefinitely and at very high degrees, but that's how they're trying to keep their business currently. Well, in the meantime, here in the States, we could all do our country a service and eat more cheese and that's right. do what we can to help. Uh, Heather Haddon, right. reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. They're going to be two divers escorting the boys, but where they get into those crunch areas, they'll have additional divers at those positions able to help with air, able to move them through those locations. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda, to talk a little bit more about these boys trapped in an underground cave in Thailand. Thank you for joining us, Miranda. Happy to be here, Oscar. So there was a very promising start to the rescue of these boys. The first group made it out very safely and a lot faster than initially expected. Uh, what's going on with these boys? Yeah, divers were able to get out the first four members of the youth soccer team trapped in the cave. And uh, what they did was they would go in diving teams and they'd come in through the cave with oxygen tanks strapped to them and they'd be placing extra oxygen tanks throughout the cave on their way in. They'd get the kids, they'd set them up, they'd tether them to their own bodies. They'd have full face oxygen masks on the kids and then they'd lead them back out in sections. So they'd go, take a break, switch out oxygen, go, take a break, switch out oxygen, go. And then they took a really long break before they entered the final phase of their exit mission where the divers and the children would actually be on foot. And, and they, they hike through. They expected the trip to take about 10 to 12 hours for the boys. They were very pleasantly surprised that the first boy made it out in about nine hours. And like you said, they had to go through uh, these different sections. There's one called the T-junction, which is so tight that the divers have to take out their air tanks just to get through. Then they make it to chamber three, which you said is their big moment of rest before they have to hit that final leg. But even still, there's two divers assigned to each boy. And they're tethered to each other and they're making their way out. They're, like you said, the waters have receded in certain parts where they can walk through, mm -hmm. but they're still swimming and they're still diving and it's still a very dangerous trip. But so far, the first group made it out and everybody's very, very happy with it. What about the rest of the boys? 
So the rest of the boys are still in the cave and that rescue mission is expected to start Monday local time. So Monday in Thailand. And the way that they decided who got to go first, because you imagine everybody's just ready to go. They took the boys who were in the best health condition at the time. They have a doctor and a nurse down there examining everyone. And they nominated the first four who were in the strongest condition to go out. Yeah. And it makes sense, you know, and that's why they rescued the first group of boys and they said, hey, we're going to take a break. We're going to replenish all the oxygen tanks along the way. And we're going to reassess the plan just to make sure we've got this nailed down for the rest of the boys. They've already lined the whole route with ropes and tanks and and I'm sure whatever kind of lighting system they could have and where they could have it just so that the rest of the boys, the ones in need of more help, they'll already know what they're working with, basically. Right. They wanted the divers to get as much experience as possible to bring out the weaker ones safely. And they even had the kids all write letters to their parents and they wrote them little notes saying, you know, don't worry about me. So there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of good spirits going on. <laughs> there was a, a boy who wrote to his uh, parents and uh, you can share with <laughs> with the audience what he said, which is very sweet. And I think I would feel the exact same way. Super what did he relatable. In, what did he wrote, put in there? Uh, Mom and dad, please don't worry. I am fine. I've told Yod to get ready to take me out for fried chicken with love. Ton. <laughs> you see where his uh, his uh, concerns are, which his is pretty, it's pretty fun. Uh, but, you know, this has captured the the attention of the world and Thailand really need to take care of this in a proper way. Everybody's watching. Uh, Elon Musk at one point even got involved saying, hey, well, we can build them a, a child sized submarine, which is great. You know, he wants to help, but that wouldn't work at all. They have to literally crawl through portions of the cave to get out. When so. the cave is too tight for a professional diver to be wearing his oxygen tank, it's way too small right. for a submarine. So they're expecting for the entire thing to just take a couple days. Maybe by the end of Monday local time, they might have all of the boys out. But there's still the pressing concern of lack of oxygen in certain parts of the cave. And and the rains is always a persistent concern. That's what they're saying is that they're fighting against the rain. They got very lucky in this first leg of the rescue mission. The water level had dropped about a foot. And that was the lowest it had been since the monsoon season started. So now it's just, like I said, it's a race against the rain. They're hoping that this level stay steady and they can get the rest of the boys out. And they're still, you know, half a mile or more straight down through rock. They're still, they said they're about two miles away from the entrance or something. I know that, that the numbers keep changing. It keeps changing a little bit. So they're still very far in the, and the trip is very perilous still. So hopefully the teams can get some effort and, and, and get it into a rhythm at least where they can uh, get the kids out a little safer. Well, and it seems like they did because it took about nine hours to get the first boy out. And then from there, it was like every 15 minutes, the next one would come. So they got, once they got going, they had a system in place. Yeah, and the big final team, uh, they have 90 expert divers, 40 that are from Thailand and then 50 from overseas, including the United States. So it's still a huge uh, uh, presence that they're trying to get through there. Yeah, and uh, this journey is incredibly dangerous, Oscar. We learned over the weekend that a Thai Navy diver actually passed away. He died in the caves. Uh, his name was Saman Gunan, and he was returning from a mission to give the group stranded with more air tanks. He lost consciousness and could not be revived. Yeah, and where it happened to him was in one of those pockets of the cave where the oxygen level has diminished so much that uh, you can't really breathe too well in there. So it's still a perilous journey, and, and hope that uh, everything turns out all right. The world continues to watch. That's Thanks, right. Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is your Daily Dive.